That's right. When you don't know what to do, just keep on breathing. From Los Angeles, which is the city of angels, and from the Big Apple in New York City, kind of a war zone these days, welcome to all my listeners out there in Radio Land. I'm Dave, the Caregiver's Caregiver at caregiverdave.com, along with my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg from the Caregiver Space. And we're coming to you live and on demand 24-7 on 25 global audio and video platforms, including... Places like iHeartRadio, iTunes, YouTube, Facebook Live, SoundCloud, Blog Talk Radio, and about 20 more other platforms around the world. So we're so proud to be voted the number one caregiver podcast of the top 50 on Player FM and one of the six best podcasts by Caring.com, as well as number three podcasts out of thousands of caregiver podcasts on Feedspot. And we have an exciting show planned for you today, don't we, Adrian? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Robert Eli Kershaw, Jr., otherwise known as Bob. (laughs) Bob became a caregiver of sorts at the age of 10. That's got to be the youngest caregiver I know of. When he met a young boy the same age who had Down syndrome, created a friendship, and the rest, as they say, Mm. is history. But before I go into that, I want to take this moment and thank my last week's guest, Pentaha Vahidi. And just a reminder, you can watch or listen to that interview and all our interviews on our membership website and all the 25 global platforms mentioned. All right, enough of that. Welcome to the show, Bob. I'm so excited to have you on. Thank you so much. It's a and I like real pleasure. Hey, the pleasure's ours. I'd like to ask our guest the first question, who is Bob Kershaw and why was he placed on this earth? Uh, good question. Uh, if you find out, let me know. Uh, <laughs> No, I, um, I've been uh, basically, I've been working with people all my life. Um, the, uh, when, I was, when I was really young, my, my parents were very um, community-minded, I guess you could call it. My father was always involved with the scouts and, and that type of thing. Uh, they got me into 4-H. I was with the church youth group. So they really instilled that that whole thing about community and uh, being a part of the the greater good type thing. Um, And when I was, like you said, when I was 10 years old, I met Charlie who, uh, I thought he was Chinese. I was so excited that I had a Chinese friend. Uh, I looked it up in the the dictionary about anything I could find uh, about China. And uh, I went home one day and I told my mother and, uh, she said, invite him over, so I did. And after he left, my mother said, well, I always knew when she wanted to talk to me because she asked me to help her with the dishes. So I <laughs> went over and uh, got my towel, and I figured I was in for something. And she tried to explain to me that he didn't have, he wasn't Chinese, but he had uh, something called mongoloidism, which was used uh, many years ago as the what they would call Down syndrome nowadays. And so 
we went through that and I still didn't quite understand it. And I was pretty disappointed he wasn't Chinese. Um, and so I looked up Mongoloidism in the uh, uh, encyclopedia and I found out it was actually uh, from Mongolia, which is in Asia. So I figured, well, that's the second best thing. So I guess Close enough. I'm all set. <laughs> <laughs> but he and I became really good friends. And um, over the, over about a year or so, I guess. Uh, and what was happening was the kids in the neighborhood, some of them anyway, not all of them at all, but some of the kids in the neighborhood would taunt him and, and tease him. And he thought it was a game. He had this thing where, you know, if somebody pushed him, then he thought it was a game. It was me, you know, now I got to go push you. And what I couldn't understand is why he didn't understand that yet they were really teasing him. And so I would eventually jump in and, and uh, tell him to go run and he would run and I would get beat up instead. So, um, <laughs> and then eventually I, I went, ended up going to camp. Uh, I asked him if he was going to go to camp and he said, no, they don't take people like me. So mm -hmm. I, you know, I thought that was kind of strange, but, um, so anyway, I uh, went to camp and when I came back, he wasn't there. His family had moved away. His father was in the service, I believe. And, um, so he was deployed somewhere else. And um, so, of course, when you're 10 years old, you think you failed. You know, I did should have done this and I, you know, I didn't do enough of this and I didn't protect him well enough and blah, blah, blah. And apparently, I don't remember this, but my mother told me one day that um, I told her that I wanted to do something to change the way people would treat somebody like him. And, uh, you know, and I didn't know how or i guess or whatever but uh and about i would say six years later seven years later um i was working with um i, I had joined a group called uh, senior teens against retardation which is now changed <laughs> it's uh senior teens uh aid recreation and um so and what it is is uh, teenagers it's a group of teenagers that go out and work with kids with disabilities and take them out to uh, uh, bowling movies or whatever and create That's different uh, environments for them uh, in the community. And so I had been working with them for a while. And one of the kids there, uh, I asked him if he, um, if he, he, he said his brother was going to go to camp. And I asked him if he was going to go, and he said no. And he said the, almost the exact same thing that Charlie said, that they don't take people like me. And that really hit me hard. It was kind of like, you know, we, I got to do something, you know. So it, it, within two years, I started a camp. I was about 19 when I, 19 or 20 when I started it. And uh, it's called, uh, it was called Camp Happiness, which is spelled wrong because uh, I can't spell. And, and uh, the, uh, the, the whole thing was that none of the adults thought that we could do it or we should do it. And um, they really put up a lot of obstacles for us. Um, and so finally, uh, I said, we're going to do this. And I got, uh, there was about 30 teenagers that agreed they wanted to do it. So we did it. And we pulled together 30 teenagers, 90, uh, yeah, 60 kids with uh, disabilities. We uh, created the camp for one week. And um, it was one of, the, one of the most exhilarating things that I've ever done before. It would, and I think a lot of it had to do with me, me creating and it was out of my mind. Um, and me being more of a uh, hyperactive, 
Uh, I think I had ADD then and nobody knew it. Um, and uh, all the things that were going on at the time with Vietnam and, and uh, the hippie movement and drugs and all this stuff, there was something that I did that was just so, so different, uh, almost, I, I want to say almost so pure because it was just pure love that these kids put into getting this camp together. And um, so event, uh, the following year, I had to go to uh, Brazil. I was, I was in 4-H, and I got nominated to go to, the, uh, go to Brazil for um, uh, the International 4-H Youth Exchange. And uh, so I had to kind of relinquish, relinquish my position as director. And so it, gave, it, it taught me a lot of letting go. Uh, I had, this was my baby. This was, I created it in my mind. I, and I could see, it was a good lesson for me because nowadays I see where I have a hard time letting things go. And I always go back to that time and, and knowing that I have to have faith in other people if they love what they're doing and they're, and, and, and they're going to do it the best way they can, then I have to let it go. And I see that in so many people uh, nowadays. And I also you know, work with teenagers now um, and kids with disabilities. And that's a hard thing for teens to, to do is to let things go like that. So uh, anyway, that's where I come from, uh, who I am uh, and what I do. Basically, right now I'm working for Washington County Mental Health. And I have, several, I have a, a client that I work with. Um, and I basically take them out into into the community and get them kind of acclimated to the community. And we go, we have to have our um, uh, Dunkin' Donuts wrap in the morning. And of course, everybody in Dunkin' Donuts knows him now. And so he's being really acclimated into the community and everybody uh, knows him. He's, a, he's an amazing artist. In fact, uh, in the picture in, uh, on the back of the book, uh, the background is one of his paintings, so I um, I utilize a lot of you know the stuff that I do in the, during the day, um, and I'm 72 years old this uh, in August, and I'm still moving. <laughs> hey, listen, uh, we're going to take an early break because we okay. had a problem with Facebook Live. I accidentally uh, ended it and restarted it, so you'll have to reshare the video above the one you were. Uh, sharing while we're on our break that'd be a great time for you to do that and we will be right back don't go away dave nasani the caregiver's caregiver has just released his sixth book entitled it's my life Too: thrive to stay alive as a caregiver it was specifically written for caregivers who know they should be putting their needs first but just don't know how Dave is the sole caregiver to his wife, Charlene, since 1996. He knows firsthand what caregivers are going through because he is one. He now speaks all across the country, offering caregivers his amazing caregiver support package. Even the airlines tell us that in the event of an emergency, to put your oxygen mask on first before you help your child with their mask. They know that those who don't heed their advice often black out thus becoming unable to help either themselves or their child. And caregivers are exactly the same way. It's my life too. Thrive and stay alive as a caregiver will help caregivers who are neglecting their sleep, diet, and social life and learn to put their needs first. Pick up your copy today or buy one for your special caregiver on sale everywhere. 
and at caregiverdave.com. Then we're back with Bob Kershaw and my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg. And I'm Dave Nassani on the Caregiver Dave Show. Sometimes I have marbles in my mouth. I don't know where they come from. But, uh, I lost my marbles, so I'm fine. <laughs> so um, where's the transition? How did you go from this friend? By the way, do you know where he is today? Have you lost contact? No, I don't. Um, I mean, Charlie, um, I I had looked around. I, I couldn't remember the, his name uh for years and then i went i decided to go to uh the city hall or town hall and uh see if i could find it there and i did find uh the last name and i searched and searched and uh it's been so many years i i have no idea you know um i couldn't find him on these you know the google search thing and uh a lot of the same names came up but uh they were definitely not them so um I have no idea. How parents, birth parents, find their adopted uh, children and vice versa. You think Mm -hmm. that uh, they had some way of finding them. Maybe go through the military. Find out where he was. Learning about the dad. That should be very easy. Trace, yeah. Tracing the dad. Never thought of that. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Bob. So, so, um, how soon after that first uh, encounter with him, I assume you realized uh, you got so much fulfillment of being this boy's protector and uh, a caregiver, because you were really his caregiver at such an early age, you're right, that yeah. uh, he says, you know, this this is fun. I, I want to do this the rest of my life. Uh, did you have an aha moment like that, or did it just fall into your lap? I think it just fall, fell into my lap. It was one of those things where... Um, he was just so much fun to be with, um, and and you know I I, I, I don't like way, to put. By the in, way, Down syndrome uh, children, you're right, are the nicest, most happiest, most uh, n- wonderful people to be around. Um, I know a few, and why? Why do you think that is? <laughs> Um, I, I don't know. I think it's just in their nature. It's it's something that um, <laughs> somebody told me one day that they said uh, they were they they had so many uh, adversities that God put a huge smile on their face. So <laughs> that's the only thing I can I like think that. of. Yeah, um, they you know we can learn something from even them. <laughs> Exactly. Instead of uh, I've saying, learned so oh, we much. Don't want people like you at uh, camp. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and in a lot of ways, when when he was being pushed around, he thought it was a game. Uh-huh. You know, he was. You know, he thought everything so was a game. Everything. Look, was, they only look for the good in others. You know, all of the exactly. godly principles yeah. that we're supposed to have. And um, gosh, maybe heaven is just a whole bunch of Down syndrome people in it. I don't know. <laughs> Because I'll be there. Maybe we'll be Down syndrome. <laughs> that's our ne- that's our next planet. Oh gosh. Um, I don't so know. What, it's, were the, it's what were the biggest struggles that you found just as a caregiver? And well, what was your first caregiving experience besides uh, Charlie? Oh uh, uh, well, the camp was was yeah. one, and um, and th- and it, with the camp, I found myself. Um, I was taking care of uh, the kids. I was taking care of the teenagers. Um, I was responsible for anything that happened there. 
the the uh, physical makeup of the of the camp. So as far as being a caregiver, I was kind of everything was um, all encompassing in that in that sense. And You're a manager. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> as well. And, yeah. yeah. And and a lot of that comes into play when you're when you're a caregiver. Um, I always tell people when you walk into somebody's room as a caregiver, um, you leave your baggage outside because you're in their world, not yours. Mm. So when I walk into Nathan's room, Nathan is uh, the boy that I work with, uh, mm -hmm. and um, he has his own chapter now, of course. <laughs> um, <laughs> but he, uh, when I walk in the room. He doesn't want to hear the bad day I had. Mm. He can't get out of bed unless I lift him up and put him in the wheelchair. So he's totally dependent on me. Now, his happiness and his um, mobility and everything depends on me. So for me to come in and say, oh, Nathan, I had the worst day. I don't know what to do, blah, 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 blah. Uh, and, you know, when I look at him, he's just like sitting there looking at me like, oh, yeah? <laughs> you want to talk about the worst day? You know, and yeah, my wife's like that. I have, yeah, and, and I have to, I have to really kind of reprogram myself. And I, I did that a couple of times, and I, and he really taught me that, that you know, when I'm a caregiver, and if I'm going to be the caregiver, I can't be the one that's going to be taken care of, you know, or consoled or whatever. Uh, you see that in the hospitals and nurses when the nurse, she could, you know, and I've seen nurses come in. Um, and and they bring their their garbage with them. <laughs> it call it garbage because sometimes it is. And they they come in and they, uh, what do you want now or something? You know they'll say something that, you know they they don't really mean, but it just they they're just in that yeah. moment. You know, yeah, exactly. And especially now with with uh, COVID nineteen, uh, I know so many people in the hospital that are so burned out. Um, and to see how they have to walk in and present themselves in a way that uh, is not going to bring those people down. It's such a transition. I mean, you know, they, they, have, they should be on Broadway. I mean, they're, they're unbelievable actors and actresses. And uh, they just, you know, to, to be able to change your pers whole personality when you walk in, when you've had the worst day ever or you just saw two people die and you right. can't cry in front of this other person, no. you know, you know, this is you have to leave your baggage outside the door and you come in and, you know, that's what a caregiver does. And it's and I always tell everybody, if you want to be a caregiver, you have to understand it's the hardest job in the world. I don't care what anybody says. Uh, I've, I've been a truck driver. I've been a cook. I've been uh, a dishwasher. I've worked on uh, uh, designed windows for stores. I've worked in uh, on Broadway for a while. Oh, really? We have yeah. to talk. <laughs> and and I've, I've worked in so many areas, and I find that the hardest job I've ever had is is working as a caregiver because you're responsible for that person's existence at that moment, you know? Um, when I pick Nathan up, I know I'm supposed to use a, a Hoya lift, but I, they don't have one, so I have to enable myself to... Be able to pick him up, put him in the wheelchair. Now, if I drop him, that's my responsibility, you know. So I make sure that I do not, and I, and I'm everything I do is is calculated. Everything that I say to him is calculated. Uh, we have, we created jokes together so that we can mm -hmm. both laugh. Um, 
And the other thing is, uh, when I was growing up, when I was, uh, I was taking care of a friend of mine who had AIDS and um, my father had a heart problem and my next door neighbor had a, um, uh, had a stroke and I was their caregiver uh, for about six years, five or six years, I guess, uh, off and on. And I went to, uh, I didn't know how to take care of somebody with HIV. So I went to the library and I asked them a question, you know, I need something to show me, a book that'll kind of give me some insight on what to do with, mm. as a caregiver, um, because there's really nothing out there. I couldn't find anything. And there was, this was before, long before the uh, uh, internet and, uh, you know, you just couldn't find anything. And Google, Google was an, non-existent. So I went to the library and, and we went through a whole bunch of stuff. And he says, I got to tell you, the only thing we have here is things on nursing and doctors and protocol and blah, 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 and the whole thing. And I said, no, I need something that's going to get me ready to go into that room. You know, what do I need to do? How do I need to approach it? And, and especially for a friend or a family member, you know? And so he says, well, I've got something for you, but you're going to have to translate it. And I, when he said that, I was like, you know, really curious. So he brought me this book and I took it home and I read it. And the name of the book was Caring for Your Pet. And what I found out in that book was that taking care of somebody who has a hard time explaining what, what's going on to them or going on with them, um, you have to, as just like with a pet, you have to know what the pee-pee dance is. You have to know what the I want to go out dance is. You want to know what the I'm hungry dance uh, I just want to lay on your lap dance. Um, world. <laughs> not a lap dance, but you know what I mean. Uh, but you have to know those things with, with your pet. The pet, unless you have a talking parrot, uh, is not going to tell you what he wants. And the same thing goes with somebody who's disabled or, uh, you know, in, in you know, a very, very ill. Um, when you walk in, you have to kind of know or create a language between you and the person you're taking care of. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, the there were so many things that uh i learned through that book about um the, just the the position of the person the facial expressions uh their body language all of that stuff is just so so important uh as f to a caregiver that you know if you don't have that you, you know you're really going to lose out and it took me a while to get it but i did get it uh there were a lot of times when you know, the, the couple of people I was working with, I was in there and doing what I thought I was supposed to be doing. And he would say, get the out, you know, <laughs> you know, get out of here. I don't need you right now, you know. And I took that personally, you know. And mm. one thing I found out with that also is you can't take that personally. Um, you know, their their world is, is in turmoil and being the caregiver, you know, you need to really understand that. and cope with what you have to do to make that work and it's just yeah. such an you know such an amazing experience for me anyway um i think that was the hardest thing that, that was definitely the hardest i mean if i ever get sick i think i'm going to call you to be my caregiver yeah i was saying <laughs> we're both oh, i do horrible. puppet shows too <laughs> <laughs> wow so uh, you mentioned all those occupations. You had the truck driver and the cook and all of that. I mean, how many years, if you were to put them together, were you actually a caregiver uh, when you weren't doing all that other stuff? I was actually a caregiver while I was doing those jobs also because 
um, uh, during the time that my uh, when I was working in uh, Massachusetts for a while, um, I was working with a group home, but I also had a job as as a designer for uh, Jordan Marsh. I was designing uh, uh-huh. interiors and whatnot. Um, and then when I moved to New York, um, I was basically taking. Uh, I met my next door neighbor who she was she was 90, 90 and he was ninety two. And he eventually died, but he was um, every night about three o'clock in the morning. She, his wife, uh, Elsie, would call me up and say uh, he needs to go to the potty. And so at three o'clock in the morning, sometimes in my underwear, I'd run right across the street, go in and pick him up, put him on the john, and we'd sit there and talk about sauerkraut, or because he used to make sauerkraut in Long Island. And I learned so much from you know just just all of that talking to him and and being a part of his life in that way um and of course half the time he would say sorry but it was false alarm and i would just pick him up you know put him back in bed and then say see you in the morning you know um you know so there was always somebody along the way i think there was only maybe five or six years that i didn't care for anybody um and uh, when i was in i lived in brazil for uh, almost two years and um I was the, the the program I was with was to try to see what kind of uh, um, what you can do with the youth within you know in that area. And what I found was that the young people in the location that I was living in, the the Japanese had total control of the um, uh, the agriculture, and they were the rural people. And then the city people were mostly uh, Brazilian or mestizos or, or uh, I can't remember what they call them, but, but they were they were Portuguese and you know native, and so it was one of those one of those things where I could see there was a big barrier there. So I started a group um, uh, called um, uh, uh, yeah, Os Meninos no, Fluvi uh, Menin. It's like mini club, mini agricultural club in, in Portuguese. And what it was was the young people that were Japanese, and, um, and I would work with them and get them to understand what they were doing there. And then introduce them to the city and youth groups in the city and to kind of do that interchange. Mm-hmm. And so as a caregiver, I was, um, you know, when I say caregiver, I, the, the term caregiver to me is so wide. You know, it, it involves every single person on this planet. We take care of the planet. We take care of ourselves. We take care of our families. We take care of uh, everything, our pets or whatever. Um, you know, we take care of our neighborhood or don't, either one. Um, yeah. <clears throat> you know, you so know, it, have, it's a bigger thing. people watching us on Facebook Live, and uh, Chris asks, is it wrong that I'm frustrated uh, be long being that might be saying being brief he's got the disease but it always seems seems like i'm always on the back burner i'm getting tired um that's caregiving what, <laughs> yeah they've got the disease now, he, he's the one that was being cared for uh chris is no. the caregiver giver he's the caregiver okay yeah, yeah. So he's saying that's... he's frustrated um something about uh belong or brief uh, he's got the disease, but it seems like I'm always on the back burner. I'm getting tired. 
so tired he can't text correctly. He's we can't <laughs> understand what he's saying. All right, that's all right. But I, yeah. I get the gist of it. You know. Yeah, I. He has you know, Parkinson's, by the way. The uh, the one he can't. Oh, he has Parkinson's. So he is he is the one being taken taken care of. No, the caregiver. No, the loved one has Parkinson's. Taken care of, right? Oh, I see. I see. Okay. And they're not easy to take care of. You know. No, 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 no. Um, what I found was um, there's a lot of times when when I'm with um, with people, um, for example, um, I had th there was a person that I was um, working with a long time ago, and they really couldn't do much. You know, there was all these. You know, there was you could do certain things. You could you know lift them up, put them aside, whatever, whatnot. And what I had to find, figure out is how can I animate myself enough to animate him? Mm -hmm. And and because you know when you're when he's saying he's tired because he doesn't know where to go with it, I think um, he's probably doing the same things over and over and over again. Um, and what I um, and I, I can go back with Nathan too because Nate. Uh, being with Nathan, you could sit there and um, be tired of him being in bed and and complaining about this, or he'll tell you to go away when he doesn't want you there, and whatnot. Mm -hmm. um, and it can be tiring. And it's and for his mother, she's she's in her she just turned eighty, and she's mm -hmm. you know uh, she's the strongest woman I know. I mean, she's just amazing what she takes, how she was able to take care of Nathan, and what I found was that I had to animate myself to the point where he was going to think that I was crazy so that we could come up with some sort of um, diversion that was going to make me not tired of doing the same thing every day mm -hmm. uh, or whatever. So I would, I created this game uh, of cards and he, of course, with having cerebral palsy, can't use his hands very well. So, I would put the cards flat face down on the thing and we'd go one, two, three, spit. Oh. And he, when I say, I or I would say move. Yeah, I played that many times. And he would take his, his fist or his, this part of his hand there and slide yeah. the card off. And I would pick it up and look at it. And if he got above six or below, uh, if he got above six, he won. If he got below six, I won. And of course, I would always make sure that he won. So you know, and I would say, "Oh man, I can't believe you just won that one too." And of course, that that changed the whole atmosphere. Going, he starts laughing, I start laughing. Um, you know, there, there's so many instances where I've I found that I had to kind of be creative. Um, driving in the car with Nathan, he gets kind of sometimes bored. He loves to listen to the music and whatnot. But sometimes he just kind of like sits there and, and, you know, he he kind of veges out. So uh, one thing I found out that he loves it when I spit out the window. So mm -hmm. I open up the window and I go, I, I do a hockalooby and he's just he's just in hysterics, you know. I mean, you have to go to, to different lengths to do to get the thing, the atmosphere to change. Yeah. Um, and the whole thing is you have to really know who you're taking care of. Um, I mean, it's, almost. it's amazing how much you you care enough to to figure all of this out. 
I mean, yeah. someone, someone right now who is tired of taking care of someone, that's, that's so common uh, mm -hmm. because it's all about them. And mm -hmm. you've, you've done things that bring you into it as well. Yes. And and it's not just all about it. It may in fact be all about them, but you've made it pleasurable for yourself. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, uh, with with Nathan, I find I I bring up Nathan because I've been with him for twenty seven years sure. now. So it's you know, uh, it, it's become routine. And even now, he'll be sitting there, and and just before I um, I'm ready to go home or whatever, he'll he'll. You know, he'll get mad at me because I'm going to be going home. So mm. I'll I'll say, oh, you're not mad at me again. And I'll open the door, the door to the closet and walk in the closet and shut the door. <laughs> and then I'm real silent for a minute. And then I'll knock on the door and I'll say, Nathan, I, I'm lost. Or <laughs> uh, I can't get out, Nathan. And he just is hysterical. And and I said, can I come out now? And he goes, yeah. And I come out, and he's just laughing like crazy. Little, just little tiny things like that. Um, you know, when when you have you, I do it because I think it's a lot of fun anyway. You know, and I'm kind of wacky anyway. But um, you know, I just find that you're a good good caregiver. Uh, you <laughs> understand, you know, you're patient and you don't take things personally anymore. I guess. Yeah, um, I did for for a while. I did take things. it personally. Yeah, yeah. Listen, we're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Don't go away. We are a community of caregivers that understands and supports you wherever you are in your journey. We are a place to connect with other caregivers, but more importantly, a place to get practical, actionable help. There are lots of ways for you to get support. First of all, you can download our welcome pack. This will get you started on your Thrive journey. Next, you can ask and get answers to your questions by posting them here in our private Facebook groups. You can also get live online support by attending one of our live Weekly Connect webinars. You can get practical, actionable advice by listening to our weekly podcast. You can hear and read other stories about other caregivers' experiences. Plus, add your own in our weekly Share Your Story forum, posted every Tuesday in the Facebook group, you can access essential resources and download practical Thrive Solutions Packs, all of which are geared to help you thrive as a caregiver. You can get lifetime access to all of our resources. Again, we're here to support you and help you thrive and to enjoy your life as a caregiver. And remember, this is a place to get hope, not just cope. So we're back with our guest, uh, Robert Kershaw, and my lovely co-host, Adrian Gruberg. I'm Dave Nassani. We're on the Caregiver Dave Show. And so let's talk about this book here, If yeah. I Survive Before I Wake. What an interesting oh, I love the name. Um, well, when I, caregiver's journey. When I was, a prayer that we pray when we're young, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, when I was with uh, taking care of Mark, who was a friend of mine who had AIDS, um, he would... In, in the 90s and the 80s, um, if you had HIV, uh, if you were HIV positive, then you knew it was death a death sentence. sentence. Yeah. Yes. Right. So, um, you know, working with people like that, um, I had friends um, who said they were going to go to uh, Atlanta. I went, when I worked uh, in some of the retail stores and whatnot, they said, oh, I'm, I'm moving down to Atlanta. And I said, oh, you're going to love Atlanta. 
and not knowing that that was called the elephant's graveyard because that's when that's where the cdc was and they were doing all the experimental drugs down there and they were doing all of the different things and i had no clue that that's what he was doing and why he was going down there and uh one of my friends went down and within about seven or eight months he was gone and it just it, it just shocked me and then i met somebody i didn't know anything about aids at the time i didn't know what it was or whatever and then a friend of mine got it and uh, we had a long conversation about it and then uh when i was taking care of mark he um he said something to me oh as he was going along he was getting worse and worse and he kept on saying you know i'm i still got to go to work and even though my leg is swollen or even though i got this or whatever i still got to go to work and he inspired me so much for somebody who was who knew he was going to die um had very little hope at all uh in that area and his legs he was going through he had carposis sarcoma um there was a whole bunch of other issues too um and so he was he was going through uh, chemotherapy or radiation treatments, the whole nine yards. And even through all of that, he had this this thing about, um, you know, I want to make sure everything's okay before I die, you know. And so at night, I would tuck him in or you know make sure he he had water on his on his dresser, uh, make sure his pills were there or whatever, and then. I would either go into the living room and, and watch TV, or sometimes I'd just go out for a walk because I needed some space. And uh, he would look at me and say, listen, if I die before I wake, make sure that my, my checking account is balanced, or make sure that, you know, make sure you get the groceries that were, you know, uh, set up because, you know, we want to make sure that everything's all, or he'd have something, but he always used that. And I, at first I couldn't understand it, but then I realized, he was so conscious of the fact that he was going to die, that he knew every, someday he was going to not wake up, you know? And so that stuck in my mind. And one day before he died, he said that, and that was the last time, right? Mm-hmm. And it stuck with me for so, so long. What did you um, think that next morning when you woke up and he wasn't there like he always was? Well, no, I was, I was there when he did die. Uh, I was at the hospital. He, there's a whole story in the book about that. We had the um, uh, the it's it's a lot like COVID in a in a lot of ways, except COVID is moving ten times faster than AIDS. Um, Airborne and touching yeah, more people. And, yep, and uh, and also the political realms is also the same, but it's that's fast. Always, that's going. There's always politics with a virus, isn't there? <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's a different stigma that was attached to AIDS that's not attached oh, yes. to this. But we're still yeah. political. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, it's people call it the gay virus. Yeah, people were calling it the gay virus. Or, you know, or the drug, you know, the, the if you're an addict, you're going to get AIDS right. or whatever. They always pinned it on certain populations. And we do the right. same thing with COVID, too. Um, but anyway, he, uh, he was in the hospital, and uh, I was right there when he died. Um, I was holding his hand. His mother was sitting on the other side of the bed, and uh, he knew he was going to go. And uh, um, he just looked at me, and he said, uh, uh, the, the, the last thing he said, uh, or that before he we went to bed that night, he said, listen, if I die before I wake, make sure my mother's okay. Right? Mm -hmm. so, and so that, that morning we went in, and he was still around, and we were both 
talking to him and he was in so much pain they gave him uh, some morphine to help with the pain. And that was when he just stopped breathing. Uh, and he just kind of, as he, as he was going through that, he looked at me as if to say, you know, don't forget the checking account, you know, <laughs> or whatever, you know, and it was like, you know, okay, okay, you know, and, and, and when he did go, it was almost, it was the weirdest feeling was, uh, and I've been with so many people who have passed away uh, when, when they've died. Um, it's, it's such an amazing experience um, where they, they just, you know, then they're, they're just not in the body. You know, they're just, they're not there anymore. And of course, you know, naturally you look up, you look up to see if they're floating over you or something, you know, or, and I looked up and I say, Mark, okay, don't get any ideas. And, you know, it was like, it was such a, a spiritual experience for me. Um, and, and, and I think the two things in the world we don't understand are birth and death. Um, when someone is born, uh, before they're born, um, you know, we, we know that, that it's it's a whole process. We still don't understand a lot of it. And we don't yeah. understand after death. So we have assumptions. We have, you know, we work with the Bible. We, you know, people have taught us certain things. We start to believe things. Um, we want to, um, we, we want to believe the right thing, you know, right. and yet we still don't understand it. And some people say they've been there and have come back. And that's, you know, I haven't yet, so I'm still questioning a lot of things. So, but this, this sounds the two things that I've noticed was that the birth and death was, are two of the most beautiful things I've ever experienced. Yeah. It was just, you know, they, they died in, and all that pain was gone. All of that, um, you know, trouble and worry and whatever uh-huh. it was, for everybody that was in the room. It was just like, it was just gone, you know? And it's, it was just almost like permission to move on, you know, yeah. permission to, to go to the next step. And uh, it was just so emotional for me. Even now, I kind of get you yeah. know, choked up with it. But it, you know, with Elsie, I was there the day before she died. She had a stroke and she was in this, looked like a crib. And she was crawling over to the edge of the railing. And I put my hand over there. She kept on pushing her hand over and I, I grabbed her hand and everybody told me that she couldn't talk. She couldn't, she didn't understand what was going on. Mm-hmm. And she grabbed my hand and she pulled me right into where the crib was. And she looked at me and she, and she whispered, she says, we had a great friendship. Mm-hmm. And that was the last thing I heard her say. And she, and she had tears coming down her eyes, I could see. Um, and then other people were coming in and she was, she kind of looked at me and rolled her eyes and, 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 and it was almost like she didn't want to talk to anybody else because, you know, all they were doing is making her more miserable, you know, with what they were talking about because they didn't think she could hear her. So, and she heard everything apparently. And then the next day, uh, I called the hospital and they said she had passed away. So it was, you know, all these different experiences that I've had. Uh, that have really woken me up to so many amazing things that, um, you know, I look at life. And in the book, um, there's one one whole chapter that I try to um, uh, develop, and I'm trying to do a whole book on it. And it's it's um, it's called Legacy. Um, when I was working with the fa- with people with HIV, my uh, my son who adopted me when he was nine, 
um, his mother was HIV positive, and um, he's uh, she was one of my clients basically. And I, I did a program for um, care education, and one of the one of the things that mostly everybody who was dying of AIDS and a lot of people who had cancer uh, were saying that I don't want to die as a, as a statistic or a number. I want to die as I want to die with a name, and and I said, well, you know, how do you you know how what do you want people to know about you? And they they couldn't tell me, so I created a program. And it, it's called um, Legacy, basically. Um, right. And the first question is, if you were to die right now, how do you think you would be remembered? Right? And what they do is they, they we talk about that for a long period of time, you know, how they think, you know, well, you know, if I do this, the people think I'm crazy, so maybe they think I'm crazy, whatever. So they kind of explore all those things, and then they can go out and ask their family, their friends, you know, if I were to die today, what would be the one thing that you remembered about me? And it's a hard process to do because you're talking about something that's very sensitive. So we go through that and then we come back and we talk about that for a while. The next question is, if you were to die today or if you were to leave my presence, leave this room or leave this life. And that's how I preamble it. Um, uh, how, do you, how would you like to be remembered? All right. So they go through a whole period of thinking about, you know, how would I want people to remember me? What do you want? What do you want on your tombstone? What do you want on your Facebook? Uh, how do you how do you want to be presented when somebody remembers you? Um, that type of thing. So they they go around and they, they do a whole series of things, explore themselves and come up with the whole thing. We come back and we talk about that and we mm -hmm. we talk about how, you know, you know, what that would mean in their life, you know, and once you get all that done then knowing the answer to both of those questions what is it you need to do or not do eliminate or add to your life to create the legacy that you want to leave mm -hmm. what are some of the tools that you'll need so for example i wrote the, the reason why i wrote the book was because i wanted my family to know who i was and my sister yeah. said it very very um uh, honestly and 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 very well she said i've known my brother for years i grew up with him and i knew he lived in new york and i knew he did this and i knew he did that i had no idea who he was mm. until i read the book and it, it what i did was basically i wanted them to understand who i was and i wanted people to i wanted this to be my legacy the, the book i didn't even care if i sold the book you know mm -hmm. at that point could probably because I was so frustrated with publishers. Uh, <laughs> that's, a, that's a whole other story. I could write a book on that. But um, yeah. the, the one thing I, uh, I felt was that the, the book has given, and even people who have read it and, and people, students that I've had over the years, uh, one student came up to me and said, you know, uh, I'm going through some, you know, some things with, with my sister and my, uh, my mother. And um, you had to be really, really, that was the most courageous thing I've ever read. And I didn't know what he meant. I didn't know what he meant. And he, he basically, he, he explained it to me afterwards that, you know, I was taking my heart and my soul and my guts and just putting it out on the mm. table for everyone to dish at. And um, 
to me, it's just, you know, it's a book, but uh, now I'm hearing other people say, you know, it's really validated everything that I've ever done in my life, you know, because they're, they're caregivers too, you know, and, um, you know, with the book, uh, you can put the, the, um, the legacy program with schools. I work with teenagers and I say, okay, you're the senior class now. What is the legacy you want to leave? You know, if you were to graduate right now, what would be your legacy? And they look at themselves and they go, holy crap, you know, <laughs> you, know? you know, oh, my God, I don't know. <laughs> you know, I've done so many bad things in my, you know, I've gotten in trouble so many times or whatever. And yeah. I say, OK, then they look at that and then they, I say, OK, what kind of a legacy do you want to leave as a group, as a whole group? And so they do. And I said, okay, now what are the things you need to do and what are the tools that you're going to use? And I present them with tools of, you know, you've got photography, you've got the internet. Uh, I'm leaving a legacy for my grandson, who is almost, he'll be a year and a half. Um, he's probably the joy of my life. And um, he's, his name is Samueli, which is the name of uh, uh, my son, was taken care of by uh, Sam Bert, uh, Bert Ulrich. His first name was Samuel, and my middle name is Eli. So, and that's why I use it in the book. And um, so he wanted he wanted his son's name to reflect that. So he called him Samuel. And I said, "Well, that leaves me out, I guess, huh?" <laughs> and we, you know, kidding. And about three weeks later, he says, "No, we decided to call him Samueli." <laughs> so he left E L I at the end was Samuel. That'll be fun in school. Oh, I know. They're going to call him Smelly. But um, <laughs> I told his mother that. So your son your son is black, right? What What are yeah, some of the issues and hurdles of taking care of a black son? Oh, my God. I've learned so much from him. Um, I've been able to see, well, he was, he was um, targeted very, very much when he was a kid. Uh, when when he got pulled over uh, or stopped and frisked, which was a big thing then, um, he got stopped and frisked quite a bit apparently. And a couple of times he did it. And I went right to the police station and I said, uh, this is my son and I want to know why he was stopped and frisked. And nobody could really tell me. And they, all they could say is that he looked suspicious. And finally, after the third time, I said, no, he didn't look suspicious. He looked black. And... They didn't know what to say with that. And I, I thought I was going to get arrested for <laughs> something. Being to honest. About it. Yeah. What city? And, hmm? What's that? What city? I was, was in Yonkers, Yonkers, New York. Yeah. And uh, so it was, it was one of those things where I started to see things through his eyes more than I could ever imagine. And, um, you know, when I, when I would go and pick him up when he was about nine years old, he, would, he was living with his mother in the projects. And I would drive, drive in. Of course, I had, I must be, I, I'm either really ignorant or stupid. I'm not sure. Uh, but I would drive into the projects and park my car right down below. And um, I would, I got really kind of concerned when they, when a whole bunch of the guys would surround the car. And I would say hi to them and whatnot. And I would say, I'd say I was waiting for Homer. And they said, oh, okay, all right. You know, so Homer would come down and he would go, he's cool, he's cool. You know, we'd get in. And then one day I took uh, Father Bert's car and it has the sign 
clergy on the inside mm -hmm. of it. So I parked it there and uh, I got out of the car and I was going to go in the building and all these guys came over and they says, oh, good morning, Father. Good morning, Father. God bless you. Bless you. <laughs> and of course, I played on this one right right to the T. And they, they said, we'll watch your car for you. We'll watch your car for you, you know. You know, uh, good morning, Father, you know. And so I went up and I got home or I came back down and sure enough, they were taking care of the car and they weren't going to go to hell, I guess. Uh, <laughs> it was it was amazing. So, you know, I, little little actions like that and little things like that really opened my eyes to so many diff different things. Um, I was I was innocent and naive also because I bought an apartment building in Nashville that they told me was right next door to the uh, Belmont University where the presidential debates were. They didn't tell me it was next door to the projects, too, where people were shooting each other and killing. So I would go, I'm a walker. I would go for walks around the thing. Yeah, I was going into these neighborhoods, and people are looking at me, and there must have been angels watching over me because uh, I'm surprised I got out of their life. So when I was in, uh, in my early years, I was in Providence, Rhode Island, and I, um, I worked for a program called Progress for Providence, and they created a camp for kids in the inner city uh, in the basement of a library. And so we had all these activities and whatnot, and I was, we, we all had a few kids in there, and I said, I'm going to go out and see if I can, you know, canvas for some, some more kids. So I went out into the projects, and um, uh, it was called Chad Brown, and uh, I had no, nobody told me it was all black. And so I just went in and I started going door to door, knocking on the doors and telling, passing out flyers and talking to them about them. And people were looking at me like, are you serious? <laughs> and I didn't know what they were talking. You know, it, it just, you know, I was just canvassing for, for more kids to come into the program. Mm -hmm. And um, when I got back to the, uh, um, to the program, they said, where did you go? And I told them, he says, you went there and you didn't have an escort? <laughs> I said, yeah, why? He said, you don't do that, you know. You're employed here. We need you. <laughs> and I, so, and and one of the um, one of the kids came in. The new kids came in, and uh, uh, he he saw me there, and he says, oh, you're that crazy white guy that was down in down in the projects the other day. Damn, that's what they called me, a crazy white guy. Yeah. Um, listen, we've only got a couple of minutes left over. So, how do you want to spend that? Do you want to tell us how to get a hold of you? Uh, you know, how sure, you I, your book, well, I've website. Got a, I've got a website. I've got a website. It's uh, author Eli Shaw, no spaces in between. Dot com, and in there you see a lot of the hmm? author A U T H yeah A U T H O R Eli E L I Ah. com, And that'll take you right to uh, a lot of pictures of the people that I worked with, my son, um, Elsie, you know, all my, all the people that are in there. Uh, one thing, um, I, I'm, and I'm writing a supplement to this also. It's, it's called COVID and me. And mm -hmm. um, it's a lot of it has to do with some of the things that we're doing that almost replicate what we did during the AIDS crisis uh, and some of the other pandemics that we did um, and have turned it into a political agenda. Um, and I'm writing a lot of different th things about how, um, what took 30 years to get to uh, the amount of people who had HIV or who were HIV positive um, and what 
has is taking um, the time that it's taking for people to get to uh, where it would go to get to that point if we keep on the same same um, uh, course is only going to take about 30, 30 months to get to the same amount of people who had it in 30 years. And mm -hmm. we're looking at it like this is a, a virus or, or a, a cold or a flu. And I mean, I've lost, I lost uh, two relatives right now. Uh, I have a, there's a friend of mine, a high school friend of mine whose whole family, uh, they're not their, his family, but his son's family had it. Um, and I've lost uh, a friend of mine in New Jersey. Uh, they just adopted somebody and, and he died. Uh, seven people in California initially had passed away. Um, two in, in um, Washington and one uh, friend of mine who was in, with the uh, publishing company that, uh, that I was with, um, he, he passed away. So I've got all these people around me that are passing away and it's so real for me. It's, it's one of the most real things that I can dish out right now. And when I see people walking around without the mask, when I see people walking around and doing things that, you know, really makes me feel like, you know, we're in this together, you know, uh, yeah. it just, you know, and, and turning it into a political agenda just blows my mind. It absolutely yeah. blows my mind. And I don't know how to address it except to say that, you know, we are, I mean, this is a virus. It doesn't, it doesn't have its own agenda, you know, it's just floating around there and it's going to do what it's going to do. We're the only ones with the agenda and we have to change that agenda to, to combat what we are going through. And I don't know where to go with that. So that's, that's part of it. But I want to, I want to address caregivers all over that. Well, we've run out of time. You, okay. But, uh, <laughs> I wish we can keep going. But yeah. uh, Adrian, we get a hold of you at the caregiverspace.org. Org. Caregiverdave.com. For some reason, I can't stop that noise. <laughs> so, thank you for uh, coming on the show. We'll have to do it again sometime. So, why don't we just uh, say goodbye and we'll okay. see you next time. Thank you, everybody. Definitely. I want to thank you so much. This has been a joy. Great. Sometimes it feels like the sun will never rise. Like the birds will never sing